Well, with all that, yes, Pastor Steve was planning on teaching today, and he had texted me on Thursday, I believe, and said, hey, just in case, I got, a, uh, I got this throat issue, I feel fine. I had talked to Johnny Aguilar, his son, on Friday night, by the way, happy belated birthday, brother, and uh, he, um, he told me his dad seems normal, but Steve said that when it came to his voice, when he would talk, it would get dry. I think he described it as it was like a sneaky ninja that would begin kicking his vocal cords when he would try to talk. So, um, you know, we, we don't have him up here, but I know he's watching and he's with us in spirit. He's a great, awesome pastor. And so um, I was sad enough to be able to be able to dig into the word and, and learn from Pastor Steve. But nonetheless, I'm excited to be able to share. And when it comes to any message I mean, I think if you are somebody who teaches from Scripture, there are a couple days of the year that you're like, this is when the most amount of people are going to be there, especially the most amount of people that may not yet know Jesus, the most amount of people that, hey, they're that, that Christmas Easter crowd, right? I don't really believe, I don't like to call it Easter, I like to call it Resurrection Sunday following the Passover, but nonetheless... That crowd, that Christmas crowd, the Sunday before Christmas, that, that resurrection crowd, that Sunday of Easter where Jesus was risen, we look at those days and we say, these are great days to be able to preach, but sometimes you don't get to choose the circumstances. You know, I don't get to choose the circumstance of being able to share today on a wonderful day, on a day, the last Sunday, the last Lord's Day, before we will celebrate Jesus's birthday Yes, we may not have the exact date. I know that early tradition back all the way to Hippolytus and his commentary on Daniel in the third, early third century, he dated it, Jesus' birth, to December 25th. I know that in Roman calendars, even pre-Catholic church, there were days of December 25th that they pointed to Jesus' birth. But in all honesty, that's not what I care about. But the fact is, I care about the fact that Jesus did come, that God did send his only begotten son And I care that he is the incarnate God, that he is, as the early church called him, the God-man. And when I look back at that and recognize that, I understand why someone, if you were of the atheist perspective, would be upset with those celebrating Christmas. I remember when Tucker Carlson, for example, got his new show uh, a number of years ago, and he had the apostate atheist uh, Dan Barker, he claimed to be a believer before, uh, that's what I mean by apostate, and became uh, a quote-unquote atheist. And he was saying how we can't celebrate Christmas because it brings sin to the matter. And that was basically what he was saying, that it's calling everyone sinners, and it's really offensive. Well, I'm so glad it is. I'm so glad that the cross is offensive because that's exactly what the scriptures say that it is. In fact, the cross was so offensive. In fact, Jesus was so offensive that he was tried. They tried to kill him, right? Immediately, not when they actually killed him, but even as a baby, King Herod would try to kill Jesus. It was a way of Satan trying to eliminate the Messiah. He tried it back with Moses and he continued throughout. In fact, Pastor Joe did a message a number of years ago about over and over again when you see Satan attempting, and this is before I was even saved, I believe he gave that message, but I like to listen to the old ones too as well. But you see Satan over and over again attempting to thwart the first Christmas, attempting to end the Messiah, attempting to end Jesus, but you can't do that. It's not gonna happen. God will fulfill his word. He will fulfill and he did fulfill it. And what's interesting is I think that when it comes to not only the enemy, but when it also comes to men, over and over again, what we find in the scriptures that men will try to make their own savior. I've heard it said that men are a factory or manufacturer of idols. And that's exactly what men are. In fact, that's why the first two commandments come against idolatry that God is the only one that we should worship and that we shouldn't fashion any other gods in any other images, including that which we create in our own mind. Over and over again, whittling these idols, over and over again, having sports players be your gods, having music be your gods, but not the one true God who loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son. 
And we look at that and we see that and we recognize that idolatry and say, we don't want to do that. We don't want to follow that. But since the fall over and over again, not only have we had people manufacturing gods and idols, but we've had precisely men attempting to make their own salvation. In fact, when you look back at Genesis, and I'll try just to make reference or otherwise we'll spend too much time, time on there, before we even get to what theologians call the proto-evangelium, before we even get to there where we see the seed of the woman and that the seed of the woman, that the heel would be bruised when it crushed the head of the serpent, the old devil, when we see that first They call it the first evangelism, right? The first message, the first declaration of salvation. But I believe if you actually go back to Genesis 1-1 and all the way through Genesis chapter 1, you have over and over again the tupas, the typology of salvation. But even before that, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is the sin that happened in Adam and that we all died in. That sin, which he was not ignorant of, by the way. It was the woman, it says, when we give commentary in the New Testament, it was the woman who was deceived, but the man was not deceived. He fell into sin. He did it on purpose. And there's a number of reasons why people believe he did that. Some people, uh, including Joe, has taught this at a number of weddings. He said one, one good theory is the fact that he loved Eve and fell into sin looking at her and and, came and went into sin with her. But when he fell into sin, in Genesis chapter 3, you may remember exactly what they did when they were hiding from God in the cool of the day, as God was walking in the garden, they hid from him because they were naked. And what did they do to hide their shame? They took fig leaves, or they took leaves, and they covered themselves. But that wasn't good enough in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. It actually says that God... Gave the first sacrifice. Because when sin came into the world, it's very serious. And I believe that that was a picture over and over again when we see, because their children would do something, one of their child, one of their children (laughs) would do something very similar. Because what we see is that they covered themselves with leaves and God says, no, blood needs to be shed. And later in Leviticus it would say, and then we quote in the New Testament, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission of sins. I believe that God was showing us something very clear in Genesis chapter 3, in those first 21 verses. Very clear that something had to die. Blood needed to be shed for the sin that was committed. And then later, under Cain and Abel, you would see once again, when it came to sin, When it came to the offering that they would give, one was accepted and one was not. Cain's was not accepted. He did not shed blood, but Abel's was. And the jealousy that took place there is quite interesting. That Cain would then murder. We have the first murder in Scripture, in humanity, when Cain would murder his own brother, because God would accept his sacrifice, the one that was the shedding of blood. So over and over again, we see these types, these understandings that men try to, I believe, minimize sin over and over again. We see it all, all, even in the New Testament as well. The minimization of sin, we see that in the modern culture, the minimization of sin over and over again. And what God is telling us throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, pointing towards over and over again the Messiah that needed to be cut off, we have man saying, not so fast. And that's something that takes place over and over again, even from the apostles, even from Peter. And so what we want to do is look at the scriptures and say, what Messiah am I looking for? What Messiah, when I go and look at the scriptures, should they have been looking for? And what Messiah am I looking back to? And what Messiah am I looking forward to? Because I want to have the right Mashiach. I want to have the right Messiah. You see, still to this day, if you talk to Orthodox Jews or so forth, and I love sharing the gospel with Jews. I love, I've done it in Israel now, two different trips. We've done it on the streets here. 
I absolutely love sharing the gospel with our Jewish friends. And I love it because the scriptures are so abundantly clear. And I, you know, I was putting together this message over the last couple nights and early mornings. And this morning, as I was thinking on the prophecy I want to go over with you today, I began to just be overwhelmed overwhelmed because there was, it wasn't that, oh, I, I, there's just this one text or maybe I can go to Isaiah 7:14 and maybe I can go to Micah 5:2 Maybe I can go to Isaiah 9, 6 and we could talk about the Messiah and talk about all the prophecies hundreds of years before Jesus was around. And then we're going to talk about today the date. And I was thinking on Daniel and I was meditating on Daniel chapter 9, which we're going to talk about. And I was overwhelmed with emotion. And a lot of you guys, um, those who are watching have known me pretty well. It takes a lot typically for me to be overcome with emotion. And I was overcome with emotion by God's grace over and over, starting in Genesis 1-1, going through not only all of Torah, going through the prophets going through the annuals, going through the kings, the histories, and everything in the Old Testament, and it's screaming out for Messiah to come, screaming out for Messiah to come over and over again. We're told in the New Testament that the apostles' hearts were, were, were on fire within them after Jesus took them through a Bible study showing through the law and the prophets and the, through the Torah, the prophets and the Psalms over and over again, him, 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 him. And it's incredible to look at that. And I was overwhelmed just thinking about the fact that God made it so clear through stories and pictures, everything that was written was pointing to the day Messiah would come, that they would yearn. And yet today, if you went and shared the gospel with the Jew on the streets, the argumentation that they would use over and over again, is this, this doesn't look like the messianic age. This doesn't look like, the, you know, the lion laying down with, the, or I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the lamb laying down with the wolf and so forth. This doesn't look like peace throughout all the earth. What are, what are you talking about? This isn't the messianic age. There's no way the Messiah has come. But there's a big problem with that. It's once again the same issue, not only that Peter had, and we will get into that, but the same issue that's been happening since Genesis chapter 3. It's not understanding that sin needs to be dealt with. It cannot simply be covered. It needs to be ended. It needs to be tetelestai, as Jesus would say on the cross, paid in full. You see, we're very, it's very clear how important it is when we look at what Jesus did and we look at the things that he said and it's clear that we could not even go into the Old Testament saints prior to Jesus paying for their sins could not even go into the presence of God. They could not. Their souls could not be in the presence of God. They would go to a place called Abraham's bosom. And in Abraham's bosom, it was a place that I believe Jesus referred to as paradise. It was a place of bliss it was wonderful, but yet it wasn't in the very presence of God because sin had not been paid for yet. That's why Abraham is in there with Lazarus. That's why Abraham and Lazarus are looking over with a chasm between them, looking down at the rich man in Luke chapter 16. And there's no passing forth from one to the other. It's a great chasm that cannot go one to the other. Some call it east and west. Some call it north and south. I think of under the earth, so I always think of it north-south. I think Dr. Walton Martin, uh, when it talked about Hades or, or Hades, when he talked about it, he would say east and west. But regardless, they would look and see this great abyss and or this great chasm between them. And yet, Jesus, it says in Ephesians chapter 4 that he would set the captives free. Those who were there in that bosom, he would set the captives free. Because guess what? The covering of sin that would take place on the Day of Atonement, the covering of sin that would take place when the sacrifice was made on behalf of Israel, it's still we needed that one 
that one that would come, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one that would come. Sin is serious, and it doesn't just need to be covered. It needs to be bought and paid for, and that's what Jesus did. And so when I think about how did the Jews miss this, not all of them. When we look at in, in, the, in the Gospels, we see very clearly that there was not only Anna, but uh, Simeon as well, who were waiting and looking and checking out the times and the seasons that he was supposed to come. They were recognizing it. But who else recognized it? Who else recognized that Jesus, that the Messiah was going to come, that the king was going to be born? It's very clear in Matthew chapter two who recognizes, starting at verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I think about these Magi, these Gentiles from Babylon coming to worship and give gifts to the Messiah, to the king of kings who was born. And you think about this, a lot of times we have the folklore and the the images and the pictures that we see, and you'll hear quizzes. I've seen Bible quizzes where you, you, you ask somebody, how many magi were there? How many wise men were there? How many kings were there? And they say three, right? Because why? You had frankincense, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So that's how they surmise that there were three. But it's not even remotely the case. That's not how the Magi from Babylon would have come. They would have come with an entourage. In fact, because of how esteemed they were as fortune tellers, as part of the, typically they would go to multiple royal courts. As part of the courts, they would not only have a number of, of people with them as an entourage. We have no idea how many Magi there actually were that were coming. But we know it was probably a lot. The fact that the king, it wasn't like three guys were just hiding and sneaking in, but the fact that King Herod knew about it. In fact, we can even go to secular historians at that time that speak about, specifically Josephus, the Jewish historian, speaks about the Magi coming and the Magi coming to see the king during Herod's time. I think that's incredible that we have that even from the secular sources. And so this was not some small event that was taking place. And Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled by the fact that guess what? They were coming because they knew a king was to be born. Herod would obviously be quite frightened about what's going on because he's a king and he's worried about getting his head cut off if there's a new king. He's worried about losing his position of political power. He was quite troubled. So much so that he tries to go to the Magi and, hey, hey, tell me where it's going to be. Where's the star so I know where to go? You know, really nice guy, right? I want, I want to go greet this king. And they're like, no. Guess what? God's like, I come to him in a dream. He came to him in a dream. Making sure that, guess what? Herod wouldn't be able to kill the Messiah. You see, because in Isaiah, it's very clear that when it comes to our God, our God is different than all the false gods. And this is something, once again, when I think about the scriptures, when I look upon them, when I read them, when I see not only the tupas, the typologies throughout the Old Testament over and over again pointing to the Messiah, I also look at the direct, specific dates and times that the Bible is like, this is when the Messiah is coming. And then I can tell you this from studying things like the Bhagavad Gita, from reading the art of war, from reading the Quran, from reading all of the Book of Mormon and so forth, you do not have these prophecies. They are not there. They are not fulfilled. They have no dawn in them, as Isaiah would say. But my God showed that he was different than the false gods from one specific thing. Very, very clearly. There were a lot of things, but one specific thing when he was talking about in Isaiah, how you know I am the true God, these are false gods, I am the only God, it's because I can tell the end from the beginning. I can tell the end from the beginning. So it's no surprise that we would have prophecy after prophecy. It's no surprise that the God of the universe who sent his only son could say 700 years before the Messiah was born, 
that he would be born according to Micah chapter five, verse two, by the way, quoted by the Magi to Herod, Micah chapter five, verse two, that he would be born in Bethlehem and that guess what? Just as the son of man in Daniel chapter seven that Jesus quoted of himself to Pontius Pilate, just as he said, guys, no genealogy. From everlasting to everlasting. Our Messiah is not merely a man. He's the God-man. Because man, no matter how righteous he is, man can die for man. Angels can't die for you either. It was only the God-man. The one that in Acts 20, 28, it says he purchased the church with his own blood. Poured out for us. That was the only way that if the God-man if his blood was poured out on our behalf. And so we look at those things and I say, this is why I love my God. He says, test me, check this out. I, I step into time, space, and matter. I created all of this and yet I came for you. I came for you. And guess what? In his grace, not only did he come as a man, not only can we look historically and say he rose from the dead, no doubt about it, we can rely completely all of our faith, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we can hinge it on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and didn't do it in private. He wasn't as the the Mormons teach. He wasn't as Joseph Smith. I have these special goggles and this stone, and this is how I read Egyptian hieroglyphics and so forth. It wasn't as Muhammad who thought he was demon-possessed and wanted to throw himself off the side of a cliff as, a, as the angel Jibreel who had already been revealed to reveal that Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us. It isn't like this. These aren't these hidden visions given. Jesus said, or Jesus did rise from the grave in public. He died a public death on the walkway into Jerusalem on Golgotha and it was public. Guys, think about this. That public death that he died, he did so on a walkway into Jerusalem. Why would it be on a walkway into there? Because they wanted people to walk by, see those crucified, and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want that to happen. And to make it even better, they put a placard over your head to describe the crimes you committed so that when people were coming into Jerusalem, they or coming into that area, they would know, I don't want to commit that because I don't want to have that excruciating pain where we get the word from crucify, excruciating, where we get that word. I don't want that kind of pain. I don't want to die that way, so I won't commit that crime. But Jesus had over his head all the crimes he committed, which were zero because he was the king of the Jews. The same thing the Magi came to worship the king of the Jews. And he was on that cross in public. But guess what? He didn't just die in public. He rose in public. He rose in public. In fact, when it was written to the Corinthians, it said over 500 of them saw him with their eyes. Five, over 500, including all the apostles who ran away, scared, and then all of a sudden something changed when he rose from the dead. All of a sudden, these men that were running around, and when Peter had a little girl say, don't you know the Nazarene, started cursing and running away. I don't know who that guy is. Now all of a sudden is crucified upside down. All of these disciples who, when Jesus was captured, ran away. Now all of a sudden as bold as lions. Why? Because they saw their risen king. So yes, by the grace of God, he stepped into time, space, and matter and gave us historical evidence that we can point to and say, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. Period. End of statement. We know for a fact. Nobody would write a letter talking about the man that people saw rise from the dead while churches are in hiding No one would write a letter talking about that and 500 different people from that church, some had already passed away by that time when it was written, over 500 different people go, oh yeah, I'm gonna keep, yeah, well we should keep, uh, you know, congregating. We we should keep reading these letters from this crazy person who talks about an event that didn't take place. No, they knew it and that is why in the same chapter he points out the fact that if he didn't rise from the dead, my preaching, your faith, it's all in vain. But the grace of God is the fact that he did it in public. The grace of God is that he gave us all of that. But that's not just it. That's not just it. He also gave us the Holy Spirit in love, in truth. 
He said that it'd be better that he leaves. That always boggles my mind when I read that. Jesus promised that it'd be better that he leaves because the Holy Spirit would not be just with us, but in us when he tells the disciples. And it would lead us into all truth so that we can follow him. But then we look at these prophecies, clear to us. Guys, these are the graces of God. We call that in theology, provenient grace, the grace that goes before us, where God over and over again, also through creation, in Romans chapter one, he makes it evident to all people, and that's actually in the context of people that are wicked. That's the God that I serve. That's the God that I follow, is one that has so much grace that he continues to pour it out in a myriad of ways. He stepped into time, space, and matter. I think sometimes we just say it. There's these theological things that we say, the incarnation, Christology, and we say these things, but we don't always recognize how mind-boggling it is, how mind-boggling it is that when we were the, the sinners, while we were yet sinners, the Christ came to die for us. And that, when we minimize as has been going on since Genesis, when we minimize the sin, we minimize the Savior. And so we don't want to do that. What we want to do is recognize that sin is dark and black and ugly and horrible and that his commandments are not burdensome, therefore are good. And the fact that Jesus had to die for him should show us how wicked it is. And so we see the grace of God coming in these myriad of ways in time, space, and matter, he becomes a man. He's not some deistic God that creates the universe and walks away to go create some other one, un apathetic to his creation. He's not this version of God in Islam that, you know what? He does, you can never be a child of his. You could only ever be a servant. He's not the Mormon God that there are many gods that they don't even know how many there are. He's not the Jehovah's Witness God either that could have an angel die for us, that Jesus isn't the uncreated creator, that God couldn't exist because the only way that we could have love eternally is if love was expressed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before creation even happened. He's not any of these false gods. He is a loving God that gave us all these different ways that we may know him. In fact, the Gospel of John says it was written for that purpose, that you may have life in his name. Over and over again, we have these beautiful prophecies, these statements made in Scripture, and God used these magi. And you wonder to yourself, and, and this is something I was thinking a lot about when it came to, I was listening to uh, different rabbis and so forth over the last week talking why they don't believe in the Messiah and trying to, trying to gather their opinions and so forth. And one of the things I was, I was thinking about over and over again is something that Paul wrote where he said that they have a veil over their eyes that is removed in Christ. That's how it's removed. And one of the, the most powerful prophecies, and I, and I don't need to reinvent the wheel because and it's interesting that John was mentioning all the things on goodfight.org. Joe did a message years ago concerning the, the 70th week of Daniel, the 69 weeks of Daniel, not the 70th week. We're still waiting for that one, but the 69 weeks of Daniel. And I want to get into that. And there's a reason I want to get into that. And I'm going to read from that article because it's, I think, the shortest article Good Fight's ever had. And it literally comes from a teaching that he gave that somebody wrote down and we made it an article. And I would say, if you wanted to give someone a Christmas gift, if you wanted to share somebody the most powerful truth, I believe, one of the most powerful truths of the Messiah, that he has come without a doubt, and then that person is Jesus, I believe the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is the one. And I will get to that. That is the one I really want to share with you today. But I think about these magi, because who are they? Imagine that, as Romans 11 says, as the Gentiles have been saved, they have been saved also, as Paul puts it, to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Because the Messiah that was to come was promised that he would turn Gentiles to the God of Israel. Can you name for me anyone in existence who has ever turned more people to the God of Israel than Jesus himself? And that is a question to ask 
of a Jew. Show me a Gentile. I mean, show me any Jew in the world who has brought more people to know their Messiah. To know, I'm sorry, to know the King of Israel, know the God of Israel. Show me. Where is he? He's only one place. He's found in Christ. I don't want to miss my Messiah. He's found in Jesus. He is the one who turned the Gentiles to the God of Israel. He's the reason I am here right now talking on a Sunday as a Gentile about the Jewish Messiah. He's the only one who fulfills that prophecy. He's the only one who was born in Bethlehem to fulfill these prophecies. He's the only one that comes from generation, from everlasting to everlasting. He's the only one from Netzer to be the root of Jesse, of Nazarene. He is the only one, my king. And so when I share, I want to share these things with people. I want to share these things with Jewish people because this is my Messiah. This is my king. And from Genesis through Malachi, crying out that he was going to come, crying out that the Messiah would be cut off. But yet they only were looking at one portion. But why would the Magi, why would these Babylonians, how could they know that the king of Israel was coming at that time? How would they know that? They had Micah, obviously, and they knew he'd be born in Bethlehem. But how did they know it? It's interesting when we look at the life of Daniel. And you think about this. Daniel, a Jewish, a Jewish man, getting an esteemed position under Nebuchadnezzar because God gave him dreams. And what I love is when I think of the Jews being jealous because of Gentiles coming to know the Messiah and coming to know the God of Israel, I find it really interesting that these magi coming from the east, coming from Babylon, the same place that Daniel was captive, that these, Jew, these Gentiles would come from, I believe, the prophecy that Daniel gave in Babylon. And in fact, if you go to Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, that's not where I'm going to be reading from, I'm just referencing it. We're going to be reading in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24. But in Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, it describes Daniel being over what would only be described as magi, the fortune tellers and so forth. Daniel would have been their boss. And guess what? Those prophecies were given in Babylon, the same place that they were coming from. So these prophet, this prophecy that we will read were given to a Jewish man in Babylon and guess what? He had magi underneath him. Not these ones, obviously. This is hundreds of years before. But still, those prophecies were given. And I believe that this prophecy, the, the 69 weeks of Daniel, is the most powerful prophecy concerning the Messiah and what's interesting and this is something that I find compelling because we're going to read the entire portion and I want to read how it's described here in our article we have on Good Fight because I think this does such a great job of expressing this truth in a powerful way but I want you as we read this to see that God is giving so many prophecies in these three verses concerning the end times, the Antichrist, concerning our Messiah, what it would look like, when he would come, all of these things. He's gonna prophesy some radical things and I, I think it's amazing when we look at it and pick up a number of things that he's prophesying. So I want to read from Daniel chapter 24 and I want to show you some of the prophecy that's being said here. In Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, ugh, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's right, the blood of bulls will not be needed anymore. The blood of goats, the blood of, or the scapegoat, the, none of that will be needed. It will all be found in Jesus. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the, mo the most holy one. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 
until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 is 69. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He'll be killed and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Before I read and explain the Shabua and the Shibuim and the dates and all that, I want you to think about something. Daniel was prophesying this. He was prophesying before there was a temple that the temple that was not yet made was going to be destroyed. Oh, and by the way, that temple that was not yet made that is going to be destroyed is going to be destroyed by who Jesus calls the abomination that causes desolation and who Matthew says in parentheses, so to speak, for us in English, Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand that who Jesus is talking about, the the prince to come, who Jesus is talking about, who 1 John talks about the Antichrist, singular, and the many Antichrists that already were in existence, the people of the prince to come, that abomination that causes desolation, Jesus is referring to this in Matthew chapter 24. So think about this. You have these three verses, I'm sorry, four verses And these four verses are telling you a prophecy of not only a temple that is going to be built, that the temple will be destroyed, that there will be a prince to come, the people of the prince to come will destroy that temple, and that that is going to be the abomination of desolation. Oh, and by the way, before that last 70th week of Daniel, as we call it, before that last seven years, The first 69 weeks will actually tell you when the Messiah will be cut off, when he will die, when he will make an end to sin and bring in everlasting righteousness, when he will tetelestai, pay it in full. That's the prophecy that was written some 700 years before in Babylon, the same place that these very magi, this group of magi, And probably they would have somewhat of like a secret service for themselves. A number of people that would get Herod shaken in his boots. They they probably didn't have boots back then. But nonetheless, he didn't. (laughs) But nonetheless, this is the prophecy. And I want to explain it and use, since we can't have Pastor Joe here, use how he explains just that prophecy. Not the people of the prince to come. Not the... The temple, not the temple being made and the temple being destroyed. It does talk about the temple being made, but I want to read it. One of the most powerful and compelling of all fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, the 70 weeks of Daniel, is one with which all Christians should be familiar. It is eye-opening for Gentiles and Jews alike. The book of Daniel was written during the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century before Christ. Skeptics who deny authentic authorship by Daniel still have to admit that the book appears in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, by the second century before Christ. Even this later date, which we don't agree with, makes this a valid and powerful prophecy. As we read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, the the following terms are crucial to understanding the prophecy. The anointed one is the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. Messiah in Hebrew is Anointed one. Cut off always refers to killed in the Old Testament. And weeks or seven, depending upon translation, is the Hebrew word Shabua. Shabua is used to mean either a period of seven days or a period of seven years, comparable to our use of decade for 10 years. This passage is stating that 79 times seven years after the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the Messiah would be killed for his people. 
The Hebrew calendar consisted and still consists of 12 months of 30 days each, resulting in a 360-day year. The conversion from that calendar to ours is as follows. 69 times 7 equals 483 Hebrew years. 483 times 360 equals 173,880 days. 173,880 divided by 365 days in our calendar year equals 476 years in our calendar year after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah will be cut off. So we are given this date, guys. When we do the math, when we look at and see quite clearly what it's talking about, we are given that 476-year date that if we are given that decree, which does happen because it's prophesied and God said it would happen, if the walls are rebuilt, start counting. Well, in Nehemiah 2.1, we read that in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the decree was given to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Verses two through nine. King Artaxerxes is a historical figure whose reign secular historians say began in 464 BC. 20 years from the date would be 444 BC when the decree is issued. Traveling forward in time, 476 years brings one to 33 AD. Remember, there's no year zero. So the year after 1 BC is 1 AD. There is a general agreement among many historians, whatever their opinion of Jesus, that between 30 and 33 AD is the year that he was crucified. This makes this an amazingly accurate, incredibly specific, fulfilled prophecy with written by God stamped all over it. And I could not agree more with that. When I think about that prophecy, I can tell you this, that in my own personal walk, that prophecy was probably the most compelling thing that I saw as a new believer. You know, I came to Christ because I recognized that I had sinned. I had a friend who reached out to me, who's now my brother-in-law, Adam. He had reached out to me because I was living in sin, a horrible life. And it's funny that John mentioned before how somebody felt led to give him rock and roll sources of the New Age Revolution. Well, I got the next generation. I got, they sold their souls for rock and roll. And all that happened because a friend of mine saw that I was living in that sin, two friends of mine specifically, Eric and Adam, and they would actually come when I was a waiter at what was called the Stray Steer at the time. It was a steakhouse right next to another church here in Simi. And they would come in and eat before they would go to service. And then eventually Adam, and, and stopped, who had stopped parting with me because he started going to this weird church called Blessed Hope, eventually he would invite me over and he would say, hey, I'm going to go see this movie. He was going to film school at the time. He's like, I'm going to go see this movie. You want to check it out? And it was called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And in that movie, I, I began doubting my atheistic faith, so to speak, my agnostic atheistic faith that I had fallen into because I liked sin more than um, actually following Jesus. And so I remember watching that and having doubts of my, faith, my, my newfound atheistic faith that I had just uh, converted to not too long before. And I remember thinking, wow, I don't really have answers. These guys don't have answers. It was a big problem for me that I thought, you know what? I'll appeal to authority and my authority will have the answers for me. And they just didn't have it. The creation of the world, all these different things. There was just nothing there. And so I was a little nervous about that. And a couple months later, he invites me over again. And we had a long talk. And in that talk, he shared the gospel with me. And he gave me what's called the good person test. Asked if I had ever told a lie. Asked if I had ever... Uh, stolen anything, looked at a woman with lust, and of course I was guilty of everything, including blasphemy and so forth. And basically what happened was he showed me very clearly that I was a lawbreaker and that I was due the justice deserved of me, which was to spend eternity paying for the sins that I had committed all my life. And then he expressed also that Jesus Christ came. We celebrate Christmas, and Jesus Christ came in the incarnation because he came here to die a death on a cross. And I didn't come to faith that day, and I recognized that, I, that this makes sense, the gospel makes sense, but it wasn't until he had given me a DVD that I eventually watched with another friend, 
And I heard the words in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, that said, he who is not with me is against me, and I gave my life to Christ. I got on my knees and gave my life to Christ. And then I remember coming to the first church service. It was January 26th, I believe, 2009. And Pastor Joe gave a message regarding what was going on uh, currently. Obama had just been inaugurated. And at that inauguration, Rick Warren had prayed to Isa, the the Muslim version of Jesus, and Joe did a message on that and, and on prayer. And I remember I was sitting right in these front rows to the left of me, and uh, now I'm on the right. You know, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I remember Joe walked right up to us, which now, knowing all these years, it's a little different. Usually people come up to him. He walked right up to us. It was about five or six of, uh, of our friends who had, two of us had just come to Christ, and Ended up talking with him for a, a while and he gave me a stack of DVDs. And in that stack of DVDs was a, a video called Megiddo. And in that video, Megiddo, they went over this prophecy and a number of other prophecies from Daniel. So immediately, Daniel became my favorite book. I was like, this book is incredible. I had not even read Isaiah yet. But when I read Daniel, I was like, I'm seeing history in advance. This is incredible. My mind was blowing. I was like, are you serious? I remember reading this article I just read to you as a brand new believer, maybe a week or two weeks into my faith, and saying, how does anyone not see it? I was appealing to an authority that had no answers. I now have an authority that has all the answers. And I I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe this, that I get to worship The God of the universe, I understood quite clearly that Jesus died for me, why he died, the gospel made sense to me, and gave me life. But then, understanding what the scriptures say, and I fell absolutely in love with the word of God because of the prophetic nature, because of its nature of being theonoustos, God breathed. I fell absolutely in love with it. And starting in Daniel chapter one, it was the only, the only Old Testament I bo- book I read as a new believer before I got back to Genesis after reading Matthew. And I remember my, my eyes were bugged out and I kept watching the film Megiddo because they would go over a number of prophecies. And I was, I was like, this is incredible. But there was nothing more incredible than this prophecy. But there was one thing that stuck in my head, this, this, this picture this, this, this dream that came to Daniel. This dream, the, the dream actually came to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Daniel would interpret that dream. And I remember listening to that. I remember watching it on video, and I remember the statue that was in the video, and I remember picturing it in my head. And I was like, this is such a cool prophecy. I mean, you have the kingdoms, you have Babylon, you have Medes and Persians, you have the two arms, you have Greece, and then you have Rome, and then you have the feet, iron mixed with clay. And And I just remember thinking to myself as I watch this, as I'm reading the scriptures, trying to learn about prophecy, and I remember thinking, man, I can't draw stick figures, but it would be so cool if I had a picture drawn of that prophecy, I think it would be so cool if I had that. I would love to have that. But I just can't draw, so I'll, I'll probably never get something like that, hand-drawn at least. Well, years later in, in God's providence, he had something else in mind. Because one day I was talking with my, my grandfather. And guys, I, I just, I'm bringing this out because when I think about Christmas, when I think about Jesus' birth, I think not only of the nature of God dying for all men, but I also think about the personalized, the personalized nature of God in his providence, in his mind, actually knowing us individually and caring about us individually, knowing when we sit down and when we rise up, knowing every single hair on our head, loving us, particularly each individual. I do believe without a doubt because of God's nature that if I was the only person if I was the only person on earth that he needed to die for my sins or you were the only person on earth that he needed to die for your sins, I believe that he would have went through it all because of how loving he is. That's my king that I have. And I remember thinking about just how amazing he is and that picture, months later, that picture that I wanted it had gone way past my head. I had stopped thinking about it. 
And one day I was talking with my grandfather and he said, hey, I have these old Christian books from your great, great aunt. I don't know if you'd want them, but I have them. And uh, I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, of course. You know, I was obviously worried, did my, did my great, great aunt love heresy? You know, I was scared about that, but it wasn't. It were, they were good books. And I, I opened those books. It was a commentary on Genesis. And I opened those books and I remember a little card popped out. And that little card was her certificate to teach Sunday school in 1926. And then another one fell out, same thing, in 1928. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like 1928, this is before Israel was a nation. How powerful is that, right? And then I kept turning the pages as I'm reading. And then one more thing slips out. And it's this picture that was drawn from my great-great-aunt in the 1920s. And that picture was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I remember looking at it and thinking, God, in your providence, you knew that when I was a drunken non-believer, you knew when I was reprobate that when I'd come to Christ, I would want something like that. I'm sorry. You knew that. You knew when she was drawing that, that one day that would flop out of a book in 2010 and I would want it. And I was more than blessed by that. And it changed when I was reading those texts where it talked about God knowing when I would sit and when I would rise. When I was reading those texts, they would talk about how Jesus loved me it made it so much more personal to me that I recognize that you died for me. That if I could implant for God so love me, I have no questions when I read John chapter three. I have no questions that God, that God became a man and died on that cross. That when we celebrate Christmas, I not just celebrate his incarnation that he came here. I celebrate that he died for me. And when I read John chapter three, it is so abundantly clear. It is so abundantly clear. If you care about theology, if you care about that scripture, you know that it says quite clearly that God so loved the world. And it uses that word world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know that it's for the world that he died. Those non-believers, as it says, in, in, as Peter wrote, those who rejected him, the false prophets, that they trample underfoot his blood, also in uh, Hebrews, that he died even for the false prophets, those who would reject him. Did I recognize that the same world that rejects him and will not come to him is the same one he died for in the previous verses? Don't stop at John 3.16. Keep reading. He came not to condemn the world then. Then. You know, I find it interesting that Jesus not only gives us all of these promises over and over again. Why did the Magi see it? Why did the Magi believe? Because they had these prophecies God came to them. Interesting, he came to a Gentile in a dream, just like he did Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel was used. Daniel was used again with the Magi. They knew when he was coming for that reason. They knew. But what's interesting is, a lot of times, once again, we may minimize sin. We may be looking for, I believe the world is looking for a Messiah. They may not call it that. But I believe the, I believe the world is looking for a Messiah, one of a different nature. Over and over again, you'll see this interesting hypocrisy from those who would look at something like God slaughtering the Canaanites, slaughtering wicked men and women, slaughtering them because guess what? They were doing absolutely heinous and egregious things sacrificing their own children and so forth. And when God wipes them out, you have the atheists and the skeptics. How could God do something like that? It's so terrible, I can't believe he would wipe them out. But those same atheists and skeptics, in their own hypocrisy, would say, why hasn't God done anything about what's going on now? 
And you know what I say? He will. He most certainly will. But guess what? 2 Peter 3 tells us why he won't right now, today. Well, maybe today. I don't know. Well, I'm not pre-trib, so I know it's not today. But (laughs) there's a lot of events that need to take place. But nonetheless, when I look at 2 Peter chapter 3, specifically verse 9, and it talks about his coming, that he's not slow. God's not slow. He's patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I praise God every day that he did not come before I came to him. There is a time where he's gonna wipe everyone out and it's not just the pedophile. It's not, those who run, it's not just those who run sex trafficking rings. It's not just the murderer. It's all liars and thieves and adulterers. It's all, the un, it's all the unbelievers. It's all the apostates. He's coming to wipe them all out and the only reason he has not come yet is because specifically he is patient. He is patient because he's a good and loving and long-suffering God. And actually, interesting enough, Jesus quotes the, the favorable year of the Lord, favorable day of the Lord, and I wanna read that to you because I find it interesting what takes place when we put these prophecies together because we're gonna get both, Messiah, both versions of Jesus, I guess you could say, not versions, but the problem is, as, we've, as I mentioned earlier, that Jews reject Jesus, they say, because... They're waiting for the Messianic era. But all Christians should know that that era is coming. That we look forward to that day. That one of the reasons that we don't grieve like the world grieves is because we recognize that Jesus is coming back. That we would not be ashamed at his coming. That we would look forward to it. That we wouldn't be those who get drunk with the drunkards and say he delays his coming. But that we would be looking forward to the day when we are with Christ. When we go to be with him when he takes us up in the air. We do look forward to that day and so that we would not be ashamed. But I find interesting is that Jesus actually mentions not only, not only the favorable day of the Lord, the favorable year of the Lord, so there's different ways to put it, but I, I'll, I'll get to that. But it's where he stops in this text because we believe in a Messiah, not only been David who is coming to rule and to reign, but we believe in Messiah ben Joseph. We believe that he would be rejected. In Isaiah chapter, the 53rd chapter, prophesying some 700 years before Jesus, the first thing it says, who will believe our report? They figured him smitten by God, rejected, but they were wrong. All the iniquities, all of the sin would be poured out on him. All the things that they did, they would think that what was happening, the scourging that was taking place on Jesus, it was happening because of his sin. He did it. He's rejected and smitten by God, but really it was for them. But what's interesting, not only is that prophesied, but here is Luke chapter four, starting at verse 17. It says, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Jesus. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's interesting when we go to Isaiah 61, that we see where he closed the book. Where did he close the book? In Isaiah chapter 61, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, the gospel, right? To the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's where he closed. What's the next verse? And the day of vengeance of our God. That's the next verse. He closed before he got to that. 
And I believe that's because very clearly that the first time he was coming, as John 1.29 says, he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The first time he was coming, he was coming not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The first coming that he was the favorable year of the Lord. His next coming, he's coming like a lion. In Revelation, the first chapter, we're giving a, a just radical description of what Jesus looks like when he comes back. This, this, it's just incredible when you see him, when you see the one whom they've pierced, when you see the radical nature of who Jesus is, that if you came to him in all his glory, if you, were, if you saw him with all his glory, you'd be torched. That's my Jesus. He's powerful. And he's coming with a sword as a tongue, a two-edged sword. And when I look at and I read the description of Jesus in Revelation, I, I just, I find someone who I'm like, wow, this is someone radical. This is someone incredible. It says in verse, in verse uh, 14, or I'm sorry, Pat Moss's vision, I'm going to start at verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Try to look at the sun. Just that alone. And then at the end, we actually see at the end of Revelation, and I know I'm running out on time here, but uh, at the end of Revelation, we see quite clearly that we don't even need the sun anymore because Jesus himself will shine. There'll be no darkness anymore. Jesus himself will shine. Think about this is my Jesus that is coming back. He came down as a lamb. It said that of his appearance, that there would be nothing of his appearance that would draw men to him. It wasn't like with King Saul, we'll just make this, he's just this great looking guy, giant armor that David couldn't even fit into, right? No, 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 no. When, he, when Jesus came in that appearance, in the appearance of man, it was nothing that would draw you to him because, oh, he's just so good looking, I'm going to draw myself to him. He's just so powerful, I'm going to draw to him. He came like a lamb, but he's coming back Look at that. His face shined like the sun in its strength. I always like looking at those models, you know. Hey, this is the earth and this is the earth compared to the sun. And it's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And this is my Jesus. And this is why when he comes back, it's like lightning shining from the east to the west. It's not a secret rapture. He made it quite clear. If somebody says, go into this door, he's over here. This is where the Christ is. He said, don't go there. I'm not there. It'll be like lightning shining from the east to the west. My Jesus who died a horrible death on a cross on my behalf is, guess what? Coming back like as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is coming back. <laughs> Tony just gave me a giant five. Do you use that with Joe? <laughs> but, uh, but guys, when Jesus came, no room at the end, right? Jesus came wrapped in swaddling cloth. Jesus came as a little baby, the creator of the universe. Nothing was made but by him, the creator of the universe as a little baby. My king came for me. He loves you specifically. You're looking for the Messiah that fulfills Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 all the way through. The only difference is he's fulfilled one part before he fulfills the other. Why is that? Why is that? It's very clear. The Jews may be waiting for Messiah ben David, but the fact is Messiah ben Joseph had to come first. Why? Because the first thing that need to be dealt with is sin. The first thing before they go to be with him, we can't go into the presence of God without being, having bought and paid for blood by Jesus Christ himself. The first thing that needed to happen is guess what? 
Their sins needed to be paid for. Otherwise, no flesh could be saved. We can't go into the presence of God without that. Without putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Romans. That's my Savior. That's my King. There's no more greater blessing to me than be able to brag about my Jesus, to brag about the incarnation, to brag about the Messiah coming, all of the prophecies, and be able to come here and do that with you guys. But not only come here and share that with you guys, not only come here and express these truths that have been so impactful in my life, but I don't know who all has communion, but I'm going to partake in communion. I believe that is part of the church service. I believe that when it comes to church service, we take communion because we go back to, I believe, the real birth of the church. A lot of people point to Acts chapter chapter 2, the Holy Spirit being poured out, but I believe it happened there at the Passover, the at the communion that was given when Jesus started it right there in the upper room. And because of that, I believe we come together every week and have communion one with another. And I'm gonna partake in that and I want, you, I want to lift that up. And you know, if you're at home, you know, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you don't know Jesus yet. I would tell you, don't never take communion if you don't know Jesus. If you take it in an unworthy manner, God literally killed people for that. It's not a joke. It's a serious thing. When we partake of communion, it's because we know that our Messiah came and died a horrible death on a cross on our behalf. When we take, partake communion, it's because we say we are of the community of the believers and we have taken and now we take from the bread of life that when I look at communion, I look at and recognize what happened and what was prophesied in Isaiah 53 that he would be pierced, that he would be bruised. And when you think of the matzah that we are given as communion, pierced, and bruised, flattened, crushed, all the prophecies. We look at those things and we don't take it lightly. We look at it and we take it and we say, I can take this communion because I'm part of the body of Christ. I partake in this Passover service with you because I understand that my sins are passed over because I have the blood of the lamb covering over me. And if you don't yet have that, if you don't yet know Jesus, I encourage you right now, these prophecies were not written on accident. These prophecies were written These biographies of Jesus were written. These letters are written that you may have life. And if you are unsure about your salvation, 1 John, the same person who wrote the gospel of John, the one whom Christ loved, who had him at the bosom of himself, Jesus had John at his bosom, said that he wrote 1 John, if you're wondering about your assurance of salvation, he wrote 1 John that you may know you have eternal life. I encourage you to read those. If you've never read anything before, do that. And I have to get through this communion because I think we go off of live in about a minute. So I'm going to try to go through it. But these are important things to me because they should be important to you because Jesus Christ died for you. You can't have a Merry Christmas, a true Merry Christmas, without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't have that relationship unless he became a man, unless he died on the cross. It's not a philosophy. It's not a good, you know, take these 10 steps and you'll be happy. It's one step to Jesus. And I encourage you, if you've yet to take that, take that one step to Jesus. Pray to him. Pray that you will know him and spend eternity with him. Lord, I thank you so much for the fact that we get to come and partake in the thanksgiving, Lord, that we get to come and partake in communion with you, Lord. The fact that your son Jesus tore the veil, that he was the veil. He tore that veil and we get to go directly to you for our problems. We cast all our anxieties on you, Lord. I thank you so much for the bread, Lord. I thank you so much as it represents the body of Jesus, crushed, bruised, pierced for our transgressions. We partake in thanksgiving for what your son Jesus did for us on the cross. And Lord, I thank you so much for the blood. You are so good, Lord. You're so wonderful. And I ask, Lord, that you would forgive us our sins. Lord, and that we partake of your blood recognizing that it was spilled on our behalf. In Jesus' name, 